Mistaken Identity is headed to the Dominican Republic on the new carnival celebration in January of 2023, thanks to MEI Travel and Mouse Fan Travel. Whether you're looking to book a cruise, visit Walt Disney World, or spend some time on a private resort in a remote location around the world, MEI Travel is for you. Frank and Jordan are scheduled to set sail on January 3rd for seven nights on Carnival's newest ship, set to debut this November. And if that sounds like the type of thing you're interested in, MEI Travel has plenty of accommodations to fit all your travel desires. Contact Brock Taylor for all of your travel needs and to determine the best deals for you at mistakenidentitymedia at gmail.com. To so many people, you know, lifelong uh, Cubs fans, it's our happy place. It doesn't feel like a year without going to Wrigley Field, and you guys are amazing at what you do. And that's the thing, is that the Wrigley employees are always so helpful. They go beyond. When you see the same faces year after year after year in the same sections, it makes you feel, it all feels like family that you're going to a place like it's a little family reunion. Every family member and friend who comes to that I take to a Cubs game or I take on a Wrigley Field tour because there's nothing better to do than be in Chicago and you all made that possible. Like I said, these are not just employees in my opinion, they're like family. I've brought people from all over the world, all over the country, people that don't like baseball. They love Wrigley Field. And we have you guys to thank for that. Welcome to Mistaken Identity Beyond the Ballpark, now part of the Unconfined Network. We explore the fascinating personal lives of the people inside Chicago's most iconic sports venue, Wrigley Field. Our podcast will take you on an amazing journey, introducing you to some incredible people that we've met along the way. We'll discuss hot topics, play a few games, and just try to have an overall good time. There'll be plenty of surprises along the way, so stick with us to see where our journey heads next. But for now, kick back, relax, and enjoy the latest episode of Mistaken Identity Beyond the Ballpark. Hey, how's it going, everybody? Joe Flaherty here, filling in for Frank. I know it's been a while since uh, you've heard my, I suppose, more live version of my voice. I know you probably are tired of hearing my pre-recorded voice on several elements in all of these shows, but thank you for bearing with me and for bearing with me today uh, because Frank asked me once again to do a general recap of what we all went through for the trading deadline a couple of weeks ago which was quite the time. And before before I get into that, I do want to mention that I did receive a lot of your birthday wishes from everybody. Uh, previously, it was earlier in August. I did stop back in Chicago for a little bit and, of course, went to uh, Wrigley, which was the first home game post-trade deadline, which was uh, an interesting experience, but it was, it was fabulous to see everybody. Um, I saw so many people. Um, and the, the love is still there for sure. So I wanted to say thank you first and foremost before we get into the nitty gritty with baseball. Um, thank you for the birthday wishes and um, appreciate all you guys and hope to see you sooner than a year. It's been a year since I've been back to uh, Chicago now that I'm living down here in Miami, but uh, it'll be hopefully sooner than a year the next time. And uh, hopefully 
will be in slightly uh, different position in terms of the competitive cycle, if you will, uh, using uh, Jed Hoyer terms here, um, regarding the Cubs and their roster. And I know we have a pre-recorded uh, disclaimer all the way at the end, but I get want to get a personal one out of the way um, right off the top here because uh, these opinions obviously are my own, and um, I am no longer affiliated with the ball club, but I know... Uh, Frank is, and nothing that we say on this show is indicative of necessarily Frank's opinion, and certainly not of the Cubs' opinion, so we don't uh, represent anyone's opinion but my own here. Uh, And with that, I want to mention that uh, this will be a little bit more informal. Um, I have a list of trades here, but last year I know I went kind of line by line. It seemed a little more scripted, but we're going to go a little loosey-goosey here for uh, the 2022 version. And I know if, if any of you are following some of my social media, uh, when I come out of my uh, social media uh, hideaway about once a year to say thank you for everyone saying happy birthday and uh, through the trade deadline, I flesh out a lot of my thoughts there. Uh, so this might just kind of be rehashing some of it for some of you who have already seen that. But for those of you who haven't... Um, Heading into this trade deadline uh, was really set up by last year. Uh, I mean, if you want to go further back than that, it was really set up by 2020 when um, the U the Darvish trade happened to San Diego for for a few prospects who have proven to be um, a little bit more interesting than than originally thought. But the 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 cost cutting measures kind of started in 2020, right after the pandemic shortened season. Yu um, Darvish was moved to San Diego for Owen Casey and Reginald Preciado. Uh, and Ishmael Mena, and those three guys are, are starting to pay a little bit of dividends in the lower minors, but it was kind of the, the signal that the Cubs were moving in a different direction, most likely, that we saw bear out last year at the deadline when Anthony Rizzo, Chris Bryant, Javi Baez all got traded in short order, and then we cannot forget that in between there, between the Darvish trade and last year's trade deadline, that the Cubs non-tendered Kyle Schwarber which was um, a very interesting decision, especially considering Kyle's made at least one all-star team since then. I don't have the numbers right in front of me, but uh, I know he was in the home run derby, and he's been hitting homers at the same pace as Aaron Judge, and Aaron Judge might hit 60 home runs this year. So, um, But hindsight's twenty twenty, and uh, obviously last year there was a healthy amount of debate whether we keep the core intact, per se, you know, with Rizzo and Baez and Bryant and run it back, surrounded by guys like Happ and Contreras and... Um, that obviously was not the decision from the front office's perspective, and in large part, it, it, it did pay out. I know it was really sour on the idea of moving away from guys who, we've, who who I literally grew up with at the ballpark, you know, having been there for all of their first days at work, per se, and um, having an emotional investment in these guys who literally put a ring on my finger. So uh, that was a, a very tough pill to swallow, but we're, it, it came with the, the implication that this that version of the Cubs was a different one than we're going to be seeing going forward, and that's been the case last year and this year. And and, and I know the initial returns um, actually played a big deal in what the Cubs saw transpire at the deadline this year, specifically the Javi Baez trade to the Mets, where he was traded for Pete Crow Armstrong, who at the time wasn't necessarily very highly ranked, was coming off an injury of his own, but he was an elite center fielder uh, playing in low A ball, and for half a season of Javi Baez, the Cubs got him in a return, and I was a little bit sour on that idea, you know, with uh, Pete not necessarily being ranked very highly 
in the system. I know prospect rankings are all all the rage these days, and you you could ask any number of people, and they fluctuate wildly. But Pete wasn't really ranked highly by most people's standards, and um, he turned into quite the fast riser this year. He is ranked um, as highly as 30th overall in the majors, um, right behind Brennan Davis. Um, depending on where you look, I tend to look at fan graphs for anyone wondering. Um, and he kind of set the tone for teams being wary that, you know, Jed Hoyer, Carter Hawkins, the analytics department, they, they kind of know how to unearth some gems. Um, it wasn't a very big name, uh, at the time coming back. I know there was Ronnie Mauricio, there was Mark Vientos, there was Brett Beatty. There were a ton of people in the Met system that Cubs fans were like, oh, why? Why didn't we go for these guys with a guy like Javi Baez? But it turns out that the Cubs really saw something in Pete Crow Armstrong, and that has you know paid dividends so far. So while some of these guys um, that returned to the Cubs this trade deadline um, may not carry the same, I, I suppose, weight with their names, as you would imagine with some of the huge prospects coming up that we see this year in, in Julio Rodriguez and C.J. Abrams and like guys who are just tearing the cover off the ball, um, like right out of the gate, the Cubs didn't really land anyone of that caliber, uh, at this deadline either, but obviously even dating back to the 2020 trade of you Darvish, the, the real answer of who won that trade remains to be seen. And that was years ago. So, um, just, just, just a note here for this trade deadline, we're not really going to get a full feel of the quote unquote winners and losers for a lot of the trades that did happen. <laughs> and I think, you know, where I'm going with this, but we're not going to know the full kind of final line on the trades that did happen for quite a while, but they're still worth discussing. But that wasn't even the main point heading into this deadline. And um, I know I make the distinction of trades that did happen versus trades that did not happen. And uh, it was all but a formality that Wilson Contreras was going to be traded uh, this season. Um at the trade deadline with one year left on his deal and, and the Cubs not really engaging in any serious extension talks for him. And, um, it's been a very weird song and dance with Wilson and the Cubs. Uh, I mean, he's been with the organization for 14 years total at this point. Um, he signed as an international free agent with the Cubs, made his debut in 2016, uh, hit a home run on the first pitch he ever saw, and then was the catcher for a world series winning team. So, Um, he's proven himself since then being a three-time all-star. He made the all-star team this year and the theory that he needed a reliable backup to improve his offensive production has been validated so far as he's put up his best offensive season as a professional. But even through all of that, um, the front office has been hesitant to, um, really engage in anything substantial by means of extension talks with Wilson, which I mean, as fans, we definitely view that as kind of unfortunate because, you know, Wilson's the heart and soul of the team. He's been really engaging with the with the younger guys coming up and helping them ease into the clubhouse. He's a very, very strong presence, wears his heart on his sleeve, and he really endeared himself to everyone here in a short amount of time. Uh, and I say here as if I'm in Chicago, but you know what I mean. Um, but the, the, the lack of serious extension talks and the perceived direction of the team, like where, where, where they're at in the quote unquote competitive cycle, like right now, as you can tell with the record being about 20 games under 500, um, they're, they're at least a few years away. And when you move guys like Rizzo and Darvish and Bryant and Baez and Kimbrell in in short order, you're going to be at a different part of contention than you would uh, versus seeing them go to the playoffs, you know, five of six years. 
Um, so at that juncture, everyone was assuming that Wilson Contreras and maybe even Ian Happ, who was in a similar situation as Wilson Contreras, uh, would be dealt by the deadline. And all indications were that that's kind of the direction the Cubs were considering taking. And and then and and then um, in walks Juan Soto to the trade deadline equation. And I don't know about you guys, but I've spent plenty of time trying to hash out um, just how the heck that makes sense <laughs> uh, from from a, a multitude of perspectives. But hey, Washington's not in in a very competitive cycle of their own at the moment. I know they won in 2019, but they've moved a ton of guys of their own in short order. And uh, Juan Soto who is still in arbitration, um, which is a process where the team um, can essentially control your contract value. You're not really getting as much as you would on the open market. This was a discussion point with Chris Bryant, having won an MVP and Rookie of the Year early in his career. When you get into the league, you have three years of team control on your contract, which means the team can basically dictate how much money they pay you and you really don't have a say in the matter. And then the other three years... Our arbitration, which means that the player uh, can look at their own statistics and uh, appraise their own self-worth and posit a number and say, I want you to pay me this amount of money. And uh, the team says, well, uh, based on what we think, we want to pay you this amount of money. And then a third party, an arbiter, um, literally take, looks that over in court and then they decide which, which value seems more um, appropriate. So the situation with Wilson is he is in his final year of his contract and his final year of arbitration, and that was already settled at around 10 or $11 million. Uh, Ian Happ is in his second to last year, so meaning he'll get an arbitration raise next year, considering he's an all-star, but he'll make more money next year. Still controlled. And then you have a guy like Juan Soto, who has uh, two and a half years of arbitration left. So a guy like Juan Soto will probably command close to $40 million annually on the open market. And while he will get, you know, 20 to 30 million probably in the last two years of arbitration now that he's uh, been moved or regardless of where he would play, uh, that's still kind of a discount, quote unquote. So the fact that Juan Soto uh, is the generational talent that he is at the age of 23 um, instantly made him the most valuable trade piece. And the fact that a team trading for him could secure him for up to three pennant races um, with the remainder of this year and the two remaining years of arbitration, um, as soon as he hit the market, that was everybody's top priority, right? So that kind of threw a wrench in the Cubs' plans. Um, they were, you know, playing with the idea of, okay, do we trade Wilson now? If we trade Wilson, we're, you know, kind of getting even a little further away from a competitive timeline. So then do we unload Hap? Do we package those guys together? Do we package those guys with a guy like David Robertson, who's having a resurgent year in the bullpen? Uh, and then you throw Juan Soto into that equation, and now you kind of have to wait to see the fallout. So uh, I guess we can all say um, uh, tongue-in-cheek thank you to Juan Soto for for kind of making the plans really derivative because um, nothing really major moved until the Juan Soto situation was figured out literally at 1 p.m. on the day of the deadline. Uh, and the deadline being 6 Eastern, there was a five-hour window for teams to scramble for backup plans, both buyers and sellers. So when Juan Soto ended up going to the Padres for the biggest package of prospects we've ever seen moved at the deadline, um, and I just want to make sure everyone understands, like that is the biggest 
most monumental trade in the history of baseball. Um, I think you can say from an outgoing and incoming value standpoint, uh, and it's going to be really, really, really fun to see um, how that pans out for everybody. I know there's a new wrinkle in that trade with, did the Padres know that Fernando Tatis was going to get suspended? And if you're not aware, he just tested positive for Clostebol, which is um, an anabolic agent, and he will serve an 80-game suspension for the rest of this season and into next season. Uh, so they won't be in tandem down the stretch, and the Padres are still looking for a playoff spot. Uh, so did A.J. Preller and the Padres know that Tatis was going to you know, be in a little bit of trouble here and try to mitigate that damage by going and getting Juan Soto and still trying to be competitive? Or did they have no idea, which is that's that's the position they're taking. Like they found out when everyone else found out. And so they just wanted to have Juan Soto around because he's Juan Soto and pair him with Tatis. I mean, you can't blame them either way. Um, but the fact that that was the primary discussion around the league put a hold on everything. So the Cubs are sitting there with five hours to go to the deadline. Um, and to make matters more interesting, um, the Padres were very much involved in Wilson Contreras and Ian Happ and uh, David Robertson from a standpoint of they were that package deal or a version of a package between two or three of those guys was kind of their backup plan if they didn't get in on if they didn't get Juan Soto because you know Soto had a number of suitors. There were the Dodgers, the Cardinals, the Padres. Uh, thankfully, he did not go to the Cardinals, but. Um, So, I mean, the Cubs were in a position where they had very valuable assets, but immediately all of those guys were seen as, you know, scrambling plan B options uh, for teams that didn't get Juan Soto. So now that the Padres are off the board uh, after holding the market hostage, uh, there goes one of your premier destinations for a team that would be in need of bats like Contreras uh, and Hap because the Padres, as good as they've been this season, they have a hole in their outfield and they could serve to use a better DH um, and, you know, Contreras and Hap check both of those boxes. So once that transpired, the Cubs, you know, kind of had to pivot. And so I believe their primary option, which was rumored quite a bit, was that they were looking to engage in talks with the Mets. Uh, and there was rumors floating that, that the Mets were interested in a combination of Contreras and Robertson or, or extra bullpen help and not necessarily Ian Hap. Um, but... <laughs> Remember, I said the uh, Pico Armstrong trade last year kind of informed the decision on the Mets part to kind of be wary of Jed Hoyer and company. So um, the Cubs uh, very appropriately highly value uh, Wilson Contreras' bat uh, in terms of a being a trade piece, not necessarily by uh, uh, extension, if you will. Um, but they they set his value pretty high. They wanted a prospect uh, of name recognition in return. And the Mets saw the Jed Hoyer and Carter Hawkins number on the caller ID, and they said, we're not making any of our top guys available. Um, And so the clock is still ticking here, and uh, the Mets are kind of out of the picture because they don't want to part with anybody um, and and get burned again as the perception around the league is that they got burned in the Baez and and Pete Armstrong trade. So that kind of shut the door on any... Um, big move uh, for the Cubs and the Mets to engage in, and so they had to pivot again. And other teams that were rumored to be in on Wilson Contreras uh, included the Astros, which would have hurt everybody's heart to see Wilson go to the Astros. Um, But they earlier uh, in the day made a move to acquire a catcher of their own in Christian Vasquez from the Red Sox. So that that took the Astros off the table. And all of a sudden, you're in a market with uh, still a very valuable trade piece like Wilson um, with the stigma around him being that even though he's not the greatest defensive catcher 
in the first place, uh, it's very hard to incorporate a catcher into a new staff and a new pitching infrastructure midseason. Um, so you have to kind of be a real defensive wizard uh, at the catcher position to even be considered uh, as someone who can move and kind of make that happen on the fly to kind of learn tendencies and infrastructure all, all in one fell swoop in a pennant race. Um, and, and Wilson's not that. So uh, the, the Astros decided to go to uh, Christian Vasquez from the Red Sox, which kind of left the Cubs in a position where there, there, there were many, there, there were a couple more teams maybe involved in, in Contreras, uh, those being the Tampa Bay Rays and the Cleveland Guardians, and those two teams are notoriously um, known for really hoarding their prospects because that's kind of how their franchises survive. They don't land huge name free agents, really. They, they draft and develop really well, um, and they really hang on to their talent for as long as humanly possible. So, uh, once all of those options one by one started, you know, falling by the wayside for the Cubs, we're in a position where it's, it's five o'clock Eastern and we're really hearing nothing moving on the Wilson Contreras front. And, uh, even though, you know, he's, he's a very high quality bat, he could play multiple positions, even though he's not the strongest catcher, the, the universal DH makes him a relevant commodity, uh, for, for any team in the league. Uh, and he's proving to, have, to you know to have a career year offensively where he's batting nearly 30% above league average, uh, which is another strong selling point because catcher is not typically a really strong offensive position anyway. So that would be a really nice luxury piece for any team in the postseason to say now we're instantly getting more production out of a position we haven't been getting any offensive production out of in catcher. Um, but now we're, we're less than 60 minutes to the deadline and uh, Wilson Contreras isn't going anywhere. Uh, so Frank literally texted me and said, wow, I think he's staying. And I still held out hope that the Cubs would be able to recoup some value for Wilson with the remaining hour. And I, I say that not from an emotional perspective, right? I'll, I'll go I'll go down saying, and I've said for years, Wilson's my favorite Cub of this this iteration of the team, this version of the Cubs that, you know, I was at Wrigley for and the, and the postseason and everything and... I, I there, there's no part of me that wanted to rationally see Wilson play for another team, but the fact that he's in the last year of his contract, the Cubs are non-committal to spending for him apparently, and since the deadline have not engaged in any further extension talks, uh, the Cubs stand to lose him for very little value. So we're looking at the deadline saying you have a commodity like Wilson Contreras, you have to try to maximize that value if you have no intention of bringing him back. Um, so what what happens now uh, is. The, the clock strikes midnight, essentially, and the Cubs uh, just ran out of options. Um, so with Wilson not moving, that made them less inclined to move Hap as well. And Hap has another year of arbitration, so we might do this whole song and dance next year with Hap. But the fallout specifically from Wilson's perspective is that the Cubs you know, can either offer him the qualifying offer after the end of this season, which he has every right to decline. Uh, the qualifying offer for those who are unfamiliar is $18.9 million for a one-year contract. But if he does end up declining that, the Cubs only get a second-round compensation draft pick in return. And uh, the Cubs could either offer him that, knowing that Wilson wants a multi-year contract with an annual value around $20 million. Maybe that gets him inclined to stay for one more year. Uh, and then from there, maybe you work out an extension or from there you trade him at the deadline uh, next year. But 
there, there is also the very real possibility that the Cubs just don't offer him any type of extension, not a qualifying offer, not an extension, and, and he ends up walking away from your franchise for nothing, which is why, um, you know, as soon as the Cubs kind of were telegraphing their retooling process and the fact that they have aging assets uh, that they need to move, then, then you kind of need to move them. If you want to have any realistic possibility of competing in short order, um, I know much was made of the last rebuild and the prolonged tanking, air quotes. I mean, it was essentially a, a three, four year period where the Cubs were kind of in the basement of NL Central and the whole line being sold to the fan base at this point in, in time, you know, 10 years later, is that it won't take quite as long. And so if you're at a point where you're saying you don't want this rebuilding, retooling process to take a ton of time, um, the, the, the primary answer here would be to offer Wilson an extension, you would think. And I know that comes with caveats. Um, as mentioned, he's not the best defensive catcher. Um, he's already 30 years old, so uh, you could be in a position where you offer him a five-year deal, and he's a 33-year-old catcher. By the time some of your other prospects start coming up, his money is kind of throwing a logjam in the payroll, and that kind of sours the rickets on offering any additional big money to free agents, kind of like the Hayward deal. Um, that's certainly something that probably made the Cubs more hesitant to offer Wilson money to begin with. And I think they're a little gun shy altogether in terms of offering, you know, contracts in excess of 20, 25 million annually to anyone, considering how the Jason Hayward contract kind of played out. Um, and, and I mean, this decision's above my pay grade, obviously, like Jed Hoyer and Carter Hawkins, they make the big money for a reason. And you kind of have to, at the end of the day, trust that their internal analytics are are telling them something that maybe we don't know. Um, and it's a tough job, you know, like you have the emotional angle and you have the business angle where you have to capitalize on any kind of surplus value you have. And Wilson is surplus value. Um, so... I mean, it was really a no-win situation going into the deadline, and it kind of made matters worse that um, there was kind of the extended period where both Wilson and Ian were basically just assuming that they were going to be traded and having that whole moment in the in the dugout after their final home game before the deadline where they're literally in tears, hugging each other, taking in their last view of Wrigley Field. And it, I mean... For them to come back and the day I'm in Chicago for my birthday, um, for them to hit the field again to, I mean, a loud standing ovation for the both of them. Yes, that's that's got to feel great. But at the same time, that's got to feel really awkward for those guys, you know, that that they've been putting so much effort into being part of the next great Cubs team that Jed Hoyer is 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 intent on creating and and to see that the team might not think that they're part of that. Um, so it's a very tenuous position for everybody involved. I, I'm not saying anyone did the right thing or the wrong thing. It's just very confusing. Um, and the the thing that kind of gives me additional confusion, I, I guess that's the word of the day here is, uh, is confusion, um, is that I, I don't really see the rickets in any hurry to, and this, I, I might have been proven wrong uh, since the time I had this original thought and now, but at the time when the deadline passed and Wilson and Ian were not moved, um, there was no real sense to think that the Cubs would be very aggressive buyers on the market. Um, so then you take that a step further and say, okay, what if they extend Wilson and Ian 
and then they just kind of largely have this version of the team without spending a lot more money. I mean, this version of the team is almost 20 games under 500. So what are you uh, committing big money to these two guys and not much else? Like, I, I don't see that as a formula for success, as good as those guys are individually. Um, so it kind of has to come part and parcel with an agreement from ownership and management that like, hey, we're going we're gonna to kind of flex our big market muscles here and commit money to this payroll. And I will say, recently there's been multiple reports um, by a number of people uh, in the higher ups of the Cubs that saying that are that, that have been saying that they're going to be very very aggressive in free agency this year, which is absolutely what you want to hear. Um, there's going to be a quartet of very high level shortstops on the market between Carlos Correa in all likelihood, um, Xander Bogarts, Trey Turner and Dansby Swanson. So um, you can add a premier shortstop. There's pitching options on the market. And in all seriousness, the Cubs, as presently constructed, are not terribly far away from being competitive, as you might think. Uh, So we'll do this thought exercise. Say the Cubs um, do extend Wilson and Ian, and then you have Seiya Suzuki and Nico Horner, who have proven themselves to be very, very valuable pieces. And and even Patrick Wisdom, who's under team control for a while and can play, you know, third base, first base, DH. Um, that's the start of something promising. And then you start factoring in that there are prospects on the rise like Brennan Davis and Pete Crow Armstrong and Kevin Alcantara. And you start having an idea that there's going to be a very solid young outfield coming. And then you have the past couple drafts where they've taken arms in the first round and they're rising through the minors and Kate Horton and and Jordan Wicks, and you already have Keegan Thompson and Justin Steele, and maybe Stroman continues his strong performance like he has after coming out of injury, and you have a path to feasibility. You add a Correa, you add a Rodon, you add a Jack Flaherty maybe, regardless of his injury concerns, and you have an idea that like, hey, this team can compete, but that's going to take a lot of money, and we haven't seen the Cubs necessarily been very willing to spend a ton of money on this iteration of the team. It was easier to justify huge contracts when you have uh, essentially a National League all-star roster at your disposal, like the Cubs did around their initial run-up to the NLCS three years in a row and winning the World Series in 2016. It was much easier to validate and and get that signed off on, okay, yes, we're going to push right up against the tax threshold. We're going to spend, you know, all the money that we've made on this team's, you know, rising level of success and all the names that we've drafted and developed, uh, the Bryants, the Baez, Schwarber, Rizzo. Yeah, who who doesn't want to come play with those guys? Lester, Arietta at the time, you know, like uh, that's a very attractive free agency destination. And the Cubs had the money to fortify that. And they did for a while. But I don't necessarily think until very recently that the Cubs were of the mind that that position was going to be close, uh, you know, within the next year or two. And I hope, you know, they kind of stick to their word here because if they're willing to throw money around, you do have a good foundation. You have, uh, as I just mentioned, you have Hap, you have Contreras, you have Horner, you have Suzuki, and you have guys waiting in the wings who are going to fortify that internally for not a lot of money. So then you have money free to uh, supplement that in a way that can get the Cubs into a contending position as early as 2024 uh, because there's a lot of salary coming off the books by then. You have uh, Hendricks who will have a team option for 2024, but it's, you know, $14 million. I really don't think the Cubs will 
will give him extend him that um, uh, team option. And um, Jason Hayward, who has been all but released at this point, uh, the news coming out that they've agreed to part ways and he won't take at bats away from anybody next year, but the, the Cubs will still have to pay his salary for 2023. But beyond that, the commitment is gone. So uh, he does have a little bit of deferred money, but there's a lot of money coming off the books in 2024. And if the Cubs do, in fact, really attack free agency aggressively, continue to draft wisely, and continue to operate at the trade deadline wisely, you can see this team being competitive in 2024. It's just when Jed Hoyer comes out earlier in the year saying there's no such thing as half measures, and then you have all season long a guy like Wilson uh, where they're uh, you know telegraphing the fact that they're going to trade him and then not do it, um, it's, just, it's just confusing. Uh, and then you have to go ahead and trust... Um, that everyone in the front office and ownership is going to be on the same page in terms of how competitive they think this team could be if they start infusing it with tons of money. Um, And that all remains to be seen. Um, So we're uh, in store for at least a couple more months of Wilson Contreras, uh, at least a couple more months of Ian Happ and into next year, most likely with Happ. Hey guys, Joe Flaherty again, and I'm excited to tell you about one of our newest partners, Athletic Greens. Having been involved in the health and fitness space for over a decade, I've heard a lot of great things about their AG1 formula, from the taste to the quality of ingredients and the comprehensive nature of the product itself. So after they reached out to partner with us, I did a little bit more digging and I was blown away by what I found. So you might be asking, what exactly is this stuff anyways? Well, AG1 is a blend of 75 high quality vitamins, minerals, whole food superfoods, probiotics and adaptogens to support nearly every system in the body. One serving a day benefits your gut health, nervous system, immune system, energy levels, recovery ability, pretty much any process your body goes through, AG1 can lend a helping hand. Now I have this stuff in my shopping cart as we speak and I'm most looking forward to a few things. First, I've been taking dozens of different supplements for years now and sometimes 10 different powders and pills from 10 different bottles can get a bit overwhelming. But AG1 offers simplicity. You can easily swap a single scoop of AG1 for a whole shelf of single ingredient products and be no worse for wear. And by the way, you stand to save a whole lot of money switching from a boatload of products to just one. Trust me, because I've been down that path before. Secondly, AG1 is a portable product you can take with you on the go. I'm a huge believer in the benefits of creating good health habits, and the fact that you can take AG1 with you anywhere is an easy way to ensure you're getting the nutritional support you need each day, no matter where you're waking up. And I don't know about you guys, but I always tend to get pretty beat up by traveling, and unfortunately, I often find myself spending most of my vacations nursing a cold. Well, AG1's formula can offer the immune support you need, to kick that cold to the curb or even avoid it in the first place and let you really enjoy yourself no matter how long you've been in an airport or an Uber. And the kicker is all the ingredients in AG1 are highly bioavailable, meaning your body can actually absorb the nutrition you're giving it. And I can't tell you how many times I've run into this issue of poor absorption and how bad you feel realizing that the only thing that expensive supplement you bought did was burn a hole in your wallet. With AG1, you have a nutritional insurance policy based on the latest scientific research, which is big for me all for less than $3 a day. And if you don't believe me, AG1 has over 7,000 five-star reviews on their site to help point you in the right direction. So it's time to reclaim your health with just one scoop of AG1 a day. And to make it easy, Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com emerging. Again, that's athleticgreens.com slash emerging, E-M-E-R-G-I-N-G, 
to take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. Hey, Wrigley fam, Kat Garcia here. You may remember me from my days working with y'all at the ballpark before I became a full-time baseball writer. Well, I'm here to tell you that now I'm back and I've started a new podcast too. It's called Grab a Drink with Kat Garcia. Since I left to pursue my career in sports journalism, I've met so many incredible journalists and media members, even some outside of the scope of sports. And all of these folks are people whose work you already read or may be familiar with. And one of my favorite things about working in this industry has been hearing all of the great advice, lessons learned, and the sometimes downright hilarious stories that have been swapped over drinks with all sorts of incredible journalists and people. And oftentimes I wish that our audiences were around for these truly authentic, fun, and sometimes candidly booze-infused conversations. So I decided I'm bringing them to you in podcast form. Join me for Grab a Drink with Kat Garcia, where I sit down with some of your favorite people in sports and journalism, like Lawrence Holmes, Scott Merkin, Maddie Lee, and Brett Taylor, just to name a few, to show you what life in sports and journalism is really like. So pour yourself a tall one or grab a hot coffee and join us. Grab a Drink with Kat Garcia is available now on Apple, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And you can follow the show on Twitter for updates, info on past episodes, and more at at grabadrink underscore pod. Cheers and happy listening. Club 400 Ballpark Lager is a beer for all nine innings. Take me out to the ball game. This crisp, easy drinking lager is perfect for a summer day amongst the bricks and ivy. Crafted at Crystal Lake Brewing, this beer is clean and refreshing with minimal bitterness so that you can celebrate a W in style. From Club 400, Cubs fans helping Cub fans, this baseball brew can be found at most places that sell beer in Northwest Illinois or from Crystal Lake Brewing. Beer master Ryan Clooney. Enjoy a beer or six pack today and please Please remember to drink responsibly. Reboots, reunions, reruns. No matter where you turn, everyone is going back to revisit nostalgic TV. Join us on a journey back in the day as we look at your favorite Black 90s sitcoms like Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, A Different World, Living Single, and Moesha. We break down a new sitcom and episode per week, discuss why the show was relevant at the time and still holds up today, discuss its impact, and laugh at how different things were back in the day or how they stay the same. Check out Back in the Day with Tanya and Cheryl now on your favorite podcast app and come on a 90s Black sitcom journey with us. But we could touch briefly on the trades that did happen. Um, they were, for the most part, just relievers. There was a minor leaguer named Dixon Machado traded uh, to the Giants for a relief prospect, um, a relief pitching prospect. But the uh, trades of note that did happen um, were Chris Martin to the Dodgers for Zach McKinstry, and he's been getting some regular playing time um, of late with the Cubs and hasn't really gotten off to a great start. But you can kind of look at him kind of like a maybe a left-handed David Bodie with um, a little bit more youth on his side. And um, just with the Dodgers, he was in a position where he was not able to get regular at-bats. Um, the Dodgers are essentially an all-star team, so he was you know, riding the bench for long periods at a time, and the Cubs will absolutely give him a shot. 
to see what they have there with Zach McKinstry and Chris Martin would have been a free agent next year anyway. So you understand, um, you know, big picture that a team that isn't competitive in the season that they are in um, kind of make any of their relievers available on the market um, for the most part, because a strong bullpen is kind of a luxury that you can factor in at the trade deadline when you're in a competitive cycle, um, as the Cubs did with, you know, acquiring a role as Chapman in 2016. Um, it, and it's something that the Cubs have proven that they could kind of build on the fly. Um, you know, last year with Tapera and Chafin, um, and then getting a resurgent Kimbrel and, and flipping him for plus value. Um, so the, the Cubs looked at, you know, their surplus in the bullpen and decided to start moving pieces from there in Chris Martin for Zach McKinstry. And then uh, a few days later on actual deadline day, um, uh, a little bit of a head scratcher with the Scott Efros move to New York. Um, so Efros uh, had a sub three ERA. He's a sidearm guy, really worked himself into a unique role in the pen. He was really, really um, proving his worth. And he had five more years of team control um, on his contract. And the fact that he was moved um, rubbed some people the wrong way. Um, but again, um, having a reliever, no matter how good they are, is not really going to shore up 20 games under 500. You know, maybe he'll be worth one or two wins over the course of a season. Um, and on the flip side, the Cubs got um, Hayden Wesneski. Uh, I've been having a tough time pronouncing his last name, but I'm sure that'll become um, more routine over time because he's been a fast riser in the Yankees minor league system. The Yankees uh, do have a bit of a track record of uh, putting together good starting pitching prospects, and he has a wipeout slider that he's been able to harness on his way up through the minors. So that is a very intriguing swap. You have a quote-unquote more proven relief commodity and Scott F. Ross going to the Yankees, which makes sense for their timeline because they're competitive this year and figure to be competitive for the entire time F. Ross is under team control. And uh, a guy like Wesneski, who um, has not even started his major league service time yet. And uh, the Cubs, there's no secret that they're always in search of uh, starting pitching. And Wisniewski's a starter. Efros is not. So that calculus is is very at, at least a very lateral move. And I think there's a higher upside in having Wisniewski on your roster who can maybe blossom into a number two or number three type if everything goes right. Um, and, and getting that guy in return for a reliever who we also have to be honest that relief pitching is very volatile. You have guys who perform really well one year and kind of fall off the map the next. I mean, we saw that really happen with Craig Kimbrell. We saw that happen with Wade Davis. Um, and teams around the league are seeing that in spades with with tons of guys. So um, that made it kind of easier for the Cubs to maybe let go of a guy that looked very promising, a young guy who proved himself, who made himself in Chicago. Um, and that that turned out to be, in my estimation, at least a lateral move and probably a beneficial move in the long run if Wesneski pans out. Uh, on deadline day, the Cubs also moved David Robertson to Philadelphia for a, a prospect named Ben Brown, and I had a, a little bit of trouble even finding Ben Brown uh, in the prospect database on Fangraphs, um, but he is now on the Cubs board, and this is a guy who stands 6'6". Uh, he's got a plus fastball, uh, formerly looked at as mostly a reliever in many scouts' estimations, but he's shown um, the ability to have, you know, kind of be lengthened out and have good stamina to be a starter. Uh, and if he adds more secondary pitch- pitches to that frame, the Cubs, you know, have another high upside uh, option who could maybe factor into the starting rotation. 
um, in the years to come. So that's another utilization of surplus value there. David Robertson bouncing around the league a little bit uh, in the past few years. He's on the tail end of his career, and you could flip that into a guy who might factor into your rotation for the next five to seven years, and I think that's a plus. Um, the Cubs also moved Michael Givens to the Mets uh, for Sal Gonzalez. Um, that you know doesn't really make a ton of waves. Gonzalez is not a very highly heralded prospect, but again, at the end of the day, the Cubs need arms, and they set about the kind of more so quantity over quality factor and are putting the faith in their new pitch lab and pitching infrastructure that they could actually start developing these arms. Um, so I believe that's a key difference, um, honestly, in the in the first rebuild and, and this rebuild, retool, whatever you want to call it now, is that the Cubs have a ton of depth in their system at this point, and they just added um, three arms at the trade deadline. Um, and you look at, at the past few trades deadlines that they've made, um, adding guys who aren't quite at the same level as a Rizzo, as a Baez, as an Addison Russell, as a Bryant, um, who don't really have as much fanfare as those guys, but they have a lot of guys who are maybe in a middling level with a chance to take another step forward and be as impactful as those guys. Um, so that's something to keep in mind going forward. There was a whole lot of fallout from all of these moves. Obviously, that's why I'm spending nearly an hour <laughs> talking your ear off about them. Um, another thing worth note was that um, other kind of one-year deals that the Cubs set out to kind of capitalize on before the season started just never materialized. Um, Wade Miley was not traded because he was injured so frequently that most teams didn't even see him as a viable option to kind of uh, bolster their rotation uh, in the stretch run for the playoffs. So, um, you know, he'll be working. He's he is working his way back from yet another injury this season. But at the season's end, he'll he'll walk. Um, Drew Smiley, not traded. He just started the Field of Dreams game, which was a great game. Um, but that was a possible you know trade piece for the Cubs that never materialized. And uh, weeks before the trade deadline even occurred, Jonathan VR uh, was designated for assignment, and so he's out of the system. Uh, and the same recently with Andrelton Simmons, who signed a one-year deal uh, to kind of fortify the shortstop position defensively uh, for the Cubs uh, on a $4 million deal and with the idea that maybe you could flip him at the deadline, but he's had his own fair share of injury troubles and just doesn't have the bat to be an attractive uh, piece really anywhere. So he was DFA'd. Um, that quartet of guys who, you know, you think maybe you can get some lottery ticket type prospects, you know, deep down in the farm system and with high ceiling uh, potential and none of them materialize into any value, um, which is the risk you take on one year contracts. You know, uh, baseball is very, very volatile year to year, not just relief pitching, but the fact that, you know, guys go year to year having really, really solid performance. That's, that's, that's rare. We have to, we have to acknowledge that that's rare uh, and nothing's ever, a given in baseball, uh, year to year, game to game. So, uh, none of those necessarily panned out. And, uh, in tandem with the Hayward news, um, that's another, you know, decision that made the Cubs kind of, uh, gun shy and what their direction should be. Um, but one of the positive notes, um, more recently after the deadline is the Cubs were able to claim, uh, Fran Mill Reyes off of waivers from the guardians and Fran Mill, 
is a guy who carries a big stick. Let's say he uh, his career averages for 162 games are at least 30 home runs and an OPS of 800. He's been struggling quite mightily this season, and the, and the Guardians simply didn't have room for him in, in their outfield. Um, and the Cubs do at this juncture. So um, the fact that they were able to pick him up and Reyes still does have team control and there's now the DH in the National League, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, so going forward uh, on waivers, um, you know, this season, I don't see too much more happening um, for the Cubs, but the fact that Hayward will be uh, out of the equation, uh, whether he's injured or not the rest of the season, and Reyes will be in the mix in addition with guys like Nelson Velasquez, um it's going to make for an interesting stretch run for the Cubs. You know, obviously not really in contention for 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 anything at this point, um, but it will be a fun team to watch. Uh, just like last season when we saw kind of the pseudo emergence of guys like Wisdom and Schwindel and Sergio Alcantara and Rafael Ortega at the deadline after the deadline last year. Um, we're, we're seeing the returns on that out of that group, really wisdom. And I, I guess you could say Ortega were the guys worth keeping around, but Schwindel kind of fell off the map, uh, and Alcantara was moved. So, uh, this season you have another group of guys, um, who are going to be in that mold. The Velasquez is, and even Ortega again, and got to see if there's anything left in Nick Madrigal, who just came back from the injured list and is still young and, uh, PJ Higgins and other type of guys who, you know, aren't very heralded prospects or organizational type guys, but maybe you have a chance to find a diamond in the rough. And the Cubs did uh, so far seem to find one of those guys in Chris Morrell. Um, and I really like what they're doing and giving him more time at third base and maybe moving Patrick Wisdom to first. I think that's actually a very, very strong move and something that I want to see um, more of in these last couple months of the season. Uh, I'm not entirely sold on the idea that Chris Morrell is maybe a starting quality third baseman on a very competitive team, but at the very least, he's a a very intriguing super utility kind of guy with a great arm and a great bat. Um, He strikes me a little bit as Javi Light in terms of his uh, swing discipline and and pitch selection, but there's time to work on that. He's very young. Um, So that's going to be the rest of the season for the Cubs. Uh, You know, seeing what they have in the young guys who are kind of bubbling to the top of the minors and... um, there's going to be a continuing transition of the guard, which again, already started happening in 2020 happened in mass last year. And despite not trading Contreras and Hap this season, um, I would still lean towards the idea of neither of those guys coming back eventually once their contracts are up. Unfortunately, again, from an emotional perspective, it will really hurt, but, um, you know, there's probably a 50, 50 chance at this point. Um, or, or less than that the Cubs offer Wilson a contract extension. Um, and, you know, the, the Cubs will continue to wait uh, on Ian Happ to see if he can, you know, continue his strong performance and maybe see if he's worthy of, in their eyes, of a contract extension next year because they have an extra year to consider for Ian. But, um, yeah, we're going we're gonna to be in a position where the team looks awfully, awfully different. Um, and... Ideally, it will happen sooner than later. I know things got a little bit delayed with Brendan Davis, who was a highly heralded prospect that we were all looking forward to seeing this year, who went down with a back injury. He had to have surgery, but he's still a very highly regarded prospect. So that's probably one of the next names that we're going to be all paying attention to. Um, so this offseason, we have to see who of this crop of guys coming up after the trade deadline sticks and contributes. Um, there's a lot of names that we already mentioned to, to keep an eye on. 
Um, and in the off season, we have to see if the Cubs hold up their word that they're going to be very aggressive because, as mentioned earlier, if you start getting more contribution from some guys you didn't necessarily expect to get it from and you start fortifying that with prospects and you continue drafting well and then you infuse that with a lot of money on the free agent market, now you can start talking about a two-year retool instead of a three- to four-year rebuild. So, very interesting. Again, very confusing. And I know there was a lot of mixed emotions um, before, during, and after the trade deadline that we're all processing. But uh, thank you for letting me talk ad nauseum about them at you um, for about the past hour or so. And uh, I still think the midterm to long-term projection for the Cubs stands to um, be pretty strong. I do have more faith now in Jed Hoyer than when he initially took over the reins for Theo Epstein. Um, I think I was you know, emotionally pretty sour on the idea of moving past the core and not necessarily extending your own guys, but we're seeing you know, the contract Javi got in Detroit, not necessarily uh, panning out so far. It's, I know it's only year one, but there, there, there's a lot of the same issues in Javi's game as, as were apparent in Chicago, and Detroit's been having a rough year overall. Uh, Chris Bryant got a ton of money to go to Colorado, um, and he's been hurt a lot. He's been productive when not hurt, but he's, you know, also already 30, and, um, you know, uh, I think he'll uh, he'll, he'll end up having some value uh, offensively uh, in Coors Field, but uh, I think the Cubs were kind of wise to to go in a different direction at that point from those guys. And uh, the one the one that really hurts for a lot of reason is a lot of reasons is Anthony Rizzo. Uh, I mean, obviously the return in Kevin Alcantara softens the blow. He's been rising really fast through the minor leagues. He's very productive, um, but. Uh, you know, Rizzo works in New York and maybe not necessarily in Chicago. Uh, I mean, it's not like you could just copy and paste the guy's production in on a different team in a different stadium with a different group of teammates and, and think he'll do the exact same thing here. So there's 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 really no guarantee that the 30 home run Rizzo we see now, uh, who's hitting around Aaron Judge and Giancarlo Stanton, would have the same output as he did in Chicago. So um, I believe it was the right move. It was the tough move. Uh, and we just have to continue seeing it through as a fan base. Um, and uh, I do trust the organizational direction. Uh, and it was just confusing to see them kind of deviate from that at the deadline by retaining Contreras. Um, you know, if it was up to me, they'd retain him for longer. But that remains to be seen. And we have at least two more months of Cubs baseball to enjoy. Um, so that'll be all for this trade deadline recap. Uh, the 2022 edition, I'm sure I will... See you all next year and talk to you for an hour about the trade deadline in 2023. And uh, who knows, maybe there will even be some really great breaking news in free agency over the offseason that we can all discuss and celebrate about. Uh, But until that point, uh, thanks for listening to this edition of Mistaken Identity Beyond the Ballpark. I'm Joe Flaherty once again, filling in for Frank, and we will catch you next time. Hey guys, if you're hearing my voice here again, that means we've reached the end of the show. It's that time again for all the thank yous and special messages and disclaimers, you know, all the stuff you really tune in for each week. A big thank you yet again to all of our supporters who not only continue to tune into our show, but take the time to hit the like button, write reviews, and share our content on social media. It all really helps us grow our audience. Our Patreon page continues to thrive as well as we're working not only on the podcast, but Roku channel and the book club and on and on and on. 
If you'd like to be a part of that expanding mistaken identity experience, follow the link in our show notes to our Patreon page or go to patreon.com and search Mistaken Identity Podcast for all the ways you can sign up to access this multitude of additional content. Mistaken Identity is also now a part of the Unconfined Network, which is a home to many podcasts whose hosts have met inside the walls of Wrigley Field. Check out the network's other show offerings. Head to unconfinednetwork.com. That's all one word, unconfinednetwork.com, to view all of our shows and their catalogs. Shouts out to Frank Walker, Jesse Graham, and Jordan Burks for their continued efforts both in front and behind the scenes to keep Mistaken Identity rolling along every week. And of course, we can't leave without our disclaimer. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are solely our own, and we do not speak for or on behalf of the Chicago Cubs or any other organization. This is Joe Flaherty for the Mistaken Identity Podcast saying stay safe, and we'll catch you next time beyond the ballpark. Hey, it's Frank from the Mistaken Identity Beyond the Ballpark podcast. Listen, I get so many messages, emails, phone calls about investing because I talk about it so much on this show that I can't respond to them all. But what I've decided to do is do a class on Patreon for all of our supporters in two categories. For those that are 40 and under and those that are 40 and older because investing is different based on your age. I get asked, Frank, what is an NFT that these young folks are talking about? What is cryptocurrency? Or I hear about Frank, is it time to readjust my 401k? What's the best life insurance to get? What about life insurance that has living benefits? Or the big one, I just got a raise at my job, it's 2%, but inflation is 7%. Did I really get a loss? I have also noticed a trend. A lot of parents and or grandparents are starting to understand that the cost of college is skyrocketing. And they know that it is better to invest when your child is younger as opposed to later on. And I've recently been talking about how I have gotten some real estate and some stocks and some other investments into Jordan's name so that he is taken care of if something were to ever happen to me. I'll break all of that down, how I did that, how you leave stuff to your children or loved ones in the will and all that good stuff on these investing sessions. Talking about all that and more on our Patreon page every week. Go and get it, patreon.com slash mistaken identity podcast. Let's get investing and generational wealth together. <laughs>